The Athletic. Hi there, I'm Adam Leventhal. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. It was a big, big weekend in the Premier League with significant developments in the race for the title, the Champions League and the relegation battle as well. Uh, we'll be catching up with our Spurs writer Charlie Eccleshare on the top four and we'll check in on the race to avoid the drop with our Burnley writer Andy Jones. But we start with that enthralling encounter at the Etihad as Manchester City and Liverpool fought to that 2-2 draw. Corner kick to Manchester City, De Bruyne far side the left, headed again away by Matip inside the six-yard box for Liverpool. Cancelo plays a flat ball in, Jesus is there! Jesus scores! Arriving at the far post, in off the underside of the crossbar! Manchester City are back in front through Gabriel Jesus. 2-1. Salah forward ball. Mane is in. What a start to the second half for Liverpool. 50 seconds into the second half. And Mane on his birthday has delivered the perfect present for Liverpool fans with an equaliser. 2-2. Alongside me I've got Adam Crafton and Ollie Kay. Welcome on board, gents. Uh, But before... We are joined by our Liverpool writer, James Pearce. Let's give the floor to our Manchester City reporter, Sam Lee, and get his view on that fantastic occasion. I think City were the better team. They obviously had more chances to win the game. And obviously the title race is it's only in their hands now. Liverpool had to win yesterday for the title to, to still be in their hands. And obviously they didn't do that. So it was very positive from City's point of view in that respect. And after the game, I was thinking, oh, fantastic match. City could and should have won it, but what a great performance. And then Guardiola came in for his press conference and he was pretty down. He was not down, down, but he was he was clearly disappointed. And he said, look, I've, I've told the players, don't be sad about that. Whereas at that point, it hadn't really occurred to me that the players would be disappointed. I thought they'd be like, okay, well, we played a hell of a game there. But clearly now in the cold light of day, you would be thinking, obviously, the players would have gone in and thought that was a big chance. And Guardiola said, we missed some chances. We left them alive. And now if you're looking from the media reaction, and I'm sure you'll hear from James, the Liverpool reporters, the noise around Liverpool, the away end, it's, it's, it's defiance. The title race is alive. That you know they're still going to push and put the pressure on, and one point's not a lot, and and all of this kind of stuff. And you think, yeah, City really did have the chance to not put it to bed, put that distance that would have made it different proposition altogether. But having said that, so there is that disappointment that they didn't take their chances. But to mix up their style, they played a lot more like Liverpool, a lot more long balls to to relieve the pressure on themselves. Second ball, blood and thunder. They. They didn't play the patient game that Guardiola was drilled into them over the last 18 months, arguably five years. They played a Liverpool game and, you know, it caught Liverpool cold and they were fantastic at that. And if they can change up their style and they can rise to the occasion because they battled and they fought and they scrapped and they can, you know, be the better team against a team like that, a team as good as Liverpool who needed to win, I think it does bode well for the rest of the season. So that is the view from Manchester City. But how are Liverpool feeling after that result and that spectacle? Uh, the Athletics' James Pierce has written a piece titled Defiant Liverpool are still standing in this heavyweight title race. Fittingly, after that struggle against Watford, he's included an Elton John line in that title. And he joins us now. James, I jest, of course, sounds like um, Liverpool and Klopp, but they're still in in good spirits after that result. It was it was a great occasion. I mean, obviously, it could have gone better, but it was it was it was good enough for Liverpool to stay in this, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think certainly the mood 
the mood afterwards, I think, in the dressing room from the manager's viewpoint and and those 3,000 Liverpool fans who were kept in after the final whistle was, was a mood of defiance, really. I think there was certainly no, no concessions, no towels being thrown in in terms of this title race. I, I think the only result that really would have defined the title race at the Etihad on Sunday would have been a Manchester City victory. You know, that that would have, I think, taken it away from Liverpool. And in the circumstances, I think, when City was so good, I think, for so long of that game, um, they caused Liverpool so many problems. I, I, I think when you, when you look at it on balance, it's 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 a decent result for Liverpool that that keeps them still alive. It's still you know yes, of course it's advantage City, but this isn't over. And um, certainly that was that was the message from from Klopp as well. Do you think Liverpool played well? I thought they did second half. I thought I thought first half. I thought they looked stunned by City's approach. I think. You know, someone said to me they thought Liverpool looked nervous. I, I didn't think they looked nervous first half. I actually thought they were just rattled by the sheer intensity of City's press. The, the you know, I've, you know, when, when you think Liverpool have kept what eight clean sheets in the last ten, they haven't conceded more than one goal in a game since the game at Stamford Bridge on January the second. So they, they have not been used to being torn apart as often as they were, like City did in that opening forty-five minutes. And I think certainly they look shocked. I think by City's approach, by being a lot more direct and knocking those balls in behind. And you know, obviously Liverpool's high line gets talked about a lot, but there's a the reason they per- persevere with it is for the most part it works but it's it's very difficult for it to work when you don't press as well as Liverpool can do that was a problem yesterday and also the the, the brilliant timing of the city runs and the, and the quality of the of the deliveries in behind so i think half time felt big because i thought to being 2-1 down at half time flattered liverpool could have been worse and and i think they they were much improved second half and yeah I, I thought still on the balance of play it, I you know I came away thinking do you know what strangely I fancy Liverpool even more now to to win at Wembley next Saturday because I think I think they'll have learned a lot from that and I think they'll be better and I'm not too sure that City can be much better than that. The interesting thing is that is that the the two games this season have followed a, a very similar pattern you know one nil one one two one two two City absolutely dominated the first half of both games and Liverpool sort of rallied and dug deep and, and came back in the second half. Obviously, they, the game at Anfield, they, they led twice, but but it was it was very similar sort of dynamics to the, to the two games. And I think I'm right in saying that over the, I mean, although eight goals were scored over those two games, I think it was only about 30, 31, 32 minutes that either team was ahead, which is remarkable. It shows that I, I don't think you could either, I don't think you could, could accuse City of sitting on the lead yesterday or Liverpool of sitting on the lead where they, where they took the lead at Anfield. But it's, it just shows that the gap between these these two teams, even if it's you know more than one point by the end of the season, or even if we can say that City were the better team yesterday, the gap between these two teams is incredibly thin. They are neck and neck. They're brilliant rivals. Would be no surprise to see them come up against each other in the Champions League final in, in, in a few weeks. The one thing I thought was quite interesting about Liverpool was I thought a couple of years ago when they played against City in, a, in those head-to-head games, I thought Liverpool had the better of City with the way that they go at them with the intensity. And... In the two games this season, as you said, it's felt a bit like Liverpool have kind of hung in there and then produced a moment of quality that's that's got them out of jail to a certain extent. Do you think that's got anything to do with, you know, you start to look at the age of those mid, that three in midfield who are all obviously have been fantastic players, continue to be fantastic players. But I thought particularly Fabinho yesterday, Thiago to an extent as well. Do you think they're able to do that, you know, that real high intensity against a Manchester City in a way that they might have been able to do 
2018, 2019, 2020. Do you think that's changed at all? I do think there's a there's a relevant question to be asked there. I also think City have got better at becoming a, a team who can sort of ride out those moments. You know, they, you go back to the, the quarterfinal, Champions League quarterfinal in 2018 and the 4-3 the at Anfield a few months before that. City were really blown away in a kind of 10-minute spell in, in those two games. City have become a team who are very good at riding out those moments and just taking the sting out of a game and, uh, and, and controlling it, You know, being more able to play on those terms. I also think it's been a while since Liverpool have played one of those ge- or one of those games has been played in a really sort of intense atmosphere because obviously the you know the behind closed doors thing for for three of their meetings and back at, at Anfield earlier in the season it was October it was a sunny afternoon it was um, it wasn't quite what you'd expect I, I think Liverpool would probably long for a game where they were playing City under the floodlights at Anfield and it was a furious crowd in in, in the background rather than um, rather than what they had in October rather than having City have home advantage in the um, in the second game but it's yeah I, I do feel City are rather than say Liverpool have gone backwards in that respect I think City are a better team at without necessarily being as good on the ball as they were two three years ago or as incisive as they were two three years ago I think they're better at controlling games now. I, I think what hurt Liverpool was how off it Fabino was and I don't I don't think that that isn't a that hasn't been the story of this season it hasn't been the story of the last month Fabino has been absolutely integral to this amazing run that Liverpool have been on but for whatever reason, he had a, a real off day. And I think I think that did that did hurt Liverpool significantly. I mean, I've not seen him give the ball away as many times as he did at the Etihad on Sunday. You know, he was beaten far too easily by De Bruyne in the build-up for the, the first goal. When, when, when Liverpool have been at their best this season, it's been Fabinho stamping his authority at the base of that midfield, you know, acting as the, the perfect shield to the back line and that that just wasn't there on Sunday and I, you know I, I think that was more of a, a one-off I think he just started poorly and then struggled to claw it back rather than it being kind of a, a pattern. In terms of the the title race now and the and the run-in obviously a lot of people are, are basically saying yeah Man City have got a, a one-point advantage and they've most probably got the the easiest run-in with only West Ham as one of the teams in the in the top six that they have to face obviously that game against Wolves uh, as well needs to be reorganized and wedged in amongst obviously they're still in the FA Cup they're still in the Champions League and they've got the league games as well do you see the Liverpool having the the harder run in and and it's going to be tough for them to to claw it back now that that one big juicy point lead yeah I think when certainly when you look at the remaining games the two teams have got Liverpool have got the the tougher matches I think the one that stands out for me at the minute is Tottenham at home because you you look at how Conte has has got them playing at the minute I think that is nowhere near a a gimme and you know even even as bad as Manchester United were at Goodison on the weekend you think surely they can't be as bad coming to Anfield you know and, and you know for, for them and for Everton you know they would love absolutely nothing more would they than to than to throw a spanner in the work so yeah I'd, I'd rather have City's remaining games I think I think you're right the one that jumps out at me is West Ham away and I think that's why it was so important that Liverpool got something on Sunday because I think I think City slipping up once is is plausible. Twice I think would have just been completely out of the question. So um, yeah, hoping for a favour off off David Moyes and Adam. Do you think that you know? Do you think that there's any sort of impact that this FA Cup semi final can have? on the title race, whichever way it goes? Or do, will it just be sort of enjoyed and, you know, seen as a just a, a, a completely different entity? Or can some body blows be, 
inflicted. I mean, literally, if Thiago carries on <laughs> the way that he ended on on Sunday, um, but 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 also, I do I do think it can have an impact. You know, if you, as I increasingly have to do as a Manchester United supporter, if you think back twenty five years, you know, when Man United played Arsenal in the year they won the treble in the semi final, they win that game and. And it prob- you know, probably the momentum of that carries you forward quite a long way, particularly when Liverpool have th- that run of fixtures, don't they, that week where they play City at Wembley, Man United on the Wednesday, Everton the weekend. I mean, in any season, no matter how bad Manchester United and Everton might be, an FA Cup semi-final and then playing your two biggest historic rivals is an emotionally exhausting week. And it might just take the momentum and adrenaline of a of a positive result at Wembley, you know, to, to really to carry Liverpool through that week to a certain extent. So I do, I do think it can have an impact. I wouldn't worry too much about the fixture list. I think, you know, Liverpool and City are both so good. They can, they're more than capable of winning all those games if they're on it. And you'd just be surprised sometimes the games that teams drop points in that you just don't expect. You wouldn't have expected Man City to drop points at Palace and Southampton. Probably wouldn't have expected Liverpool to lose at Leicester this season. Sometimes things happen, red cards happen, penalties happen. So I don't think either manager will be really worried about the fixture list. It will just be a case of, if my players turn up, we'll win this league. I was looking at the fixture list, even in the build-up to this game or, or a week ago, look, looking at City going to Leeds, City going to West Ham, who at that point looked like they were still just about in the, in the race for top four, top six. Liverpool playing uh, Newcastle and Watford, obviously, they've already played. But you looked at those games a couple of weeks ago and there were teams that were sort of fighting for their lives. It doesn't really look like that, particularly now at the bottom table. Even Everton have got a bit more comfort um, than they had 48 hours ago. So it's, it's, it feels like there could be a lot of teams, you know, a lot of matches where they're playing one or either or both teams are playing mid-table oppositions with, with not much to play for. And I think that make, feel, makes it feel even more likely that, say, City will just win out from here. We shall see. James, thank you very much for coming on. Cheers, guys. Regular listeners to the pod will know that every Monday on The Athletic, you can read David Ornstein's weekly column full of the biggest stories and news from inside football. And now you can get it in audio format exclusive for subscribers to The Athletic or Apple Podcast Plus. That's every Monday lunchtime. Today's show includes an update on Eric Ten Hag's status with regards to the Manchester United job. Also, an interesting story regarding Marina Granoskaya at Chelsea and the pursuit of Darwin Nunes by teams including the likes of Chelsea as well. Just head to the Athletic app or the Athletic Football Podcast feed on Apple Podcasts and it'll be right there for you. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Well, for so long, it seemed that Arsenal were looking good to secure fourth place, but two losses in a week and Manchester United's continued struggles has all of a sudden turned the tables in Spurs' favour. Joining us now is The Athletic's Tottenham writer, Charlie Eccleshare. Welcome on board, Charlie. I suppose it's it's a nice situation to be in to, to see Spurs heading in the right direction, looking reliable, and they must be... They must be pretty confident now of achieving a top four finish. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing the change in the space of a week. I mean, this time a week ago, 
as we record on Monday morning, Arsenal, we didn't yet know about the Tierney injury. Obviously, the Partey injury hadn't happened. Arsenal hadn't lost those two games. And at that point, we were still thinking it was in their hands. And since then, it's all imploded for them. Meanwhile, Spurs look as if they've cracked it. I mean, the, the way they're attacking, they just look like they're going to score so many goals every game. They, they remind me of the Brendan Rodgers Liverpool team in the run-in in 2014 before it all didn't go so well. But, you know, they were just that team scored so many goals and they had a front three that were borderline unplayable for most of those matches. And Spurs in Kainson and Kudusevsky have something similar. They're scoring loads... They're not conceding many. They all look like they know exactly what they're doing. It's um, it's kind of exactly as Conte would want. And at the moment, the way it's heading, and obviously things change so quickly, but I do wonder if Sky might be slightly cursing leaving that North London derby as late as they have, because I, I just wonder whether Arsenal will be able to keep pace with Spurs the way they're going at the moment. Charlie, with uh, Kulosevsky, was he someone that Conte wanted as soon as he came in or was it quite opportunist? I think a lot of people looked at it in January and just saw Paratici used to be at Juventus, <laughs> Kulosevsky's kind of available, yeah. we'll just grab him while he's there. But it's, it's worked so brilliantly. I mean, how how much is that of that is chance? How much of that was planning? Well, the thing is, they wanted Luis Diaz. He was the one. And the, the interesting there is that Luis Diaz, had he came in, he obviously likes to play on the left-hand side, cutting in onto his right in the way that Son does. And there were some slight concerns as to how that would work, but it was generally considered, well, it's fine. He's, that, he's so good that he'll be worth bringing in. Obviously, that then didn't happen. Liverpool got him instead. So as you say, they 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 turned to Kudusevsky. I mean, I think Kudusevsky was someone who... Conte's liked him before. He wanted to sign him for Inter. But then at the time when he went to Juve, uh, partly because Kudusevsky thought he would have, might have to play as a wing-back under Conte and he wasn't really up for doing that. And obviously Juve came in and got him instead. So Conte has liked him for a while. And he was definitely one of the ones on his list. But also, I think because Conte is so sort of system focused and all of that, he's a bit less in in the way that Spurs were used to under Pochettino would be very, very particular about the kinds of players he wanted. Conte has a slightly wider kind of net, I suppose, of players who might fit into his system. But I do think it's really interesting because the way that football recruitment works there's a lot of copycatting and I bet now everyone's going to say oh wait actually we should just go to the best clubs and get their cast offs that's that's the way to do it look at look at Bentoncourt and Kulisevsky and inevitably it won't work for other clubs look at Everton um, Barcelona well yeah yeah. so I think there'll be a lot of that looking at it and being like maybe that is more the way to go but obviously it's not quite that simple and Kudusevsky is someone who I think, you know, his attitude's been spot on. And Benton Kaur as well has come in and done similarly. But he, he is someone Conte's liked a lot. So I don't think it's quite as uh, as much as, you know, just Paratici getting to the end of the month and being like, oh, cap in hand, I'll just try and get some out-of-form players from, from my old club. But whatever the approach, it's it's looking like a masterstroke, that signing. In terms of the, you know, the turnaround, which you, you mentioned Obviously, at the beginning there, and you know, you mentioned the fact that they were very unspursy. What is that? What's the glue that's holding it together? How were they able to soak up so much pressure and then be able to burst forward and looked look so excellent in the in the final third? Is it simply the energy of Conti, or is he doing something completely different on the training pitch? What I do think it? that makes an enormous difference how much fitter they are than everyone than a lot of the teams they play because they are able to back themselves to soak up pressure 
and then as games go on, be stronger. I mean, they've scored seven second half goals in their last two games. I mean, that's an extraordinary number. And in both of those games, I think a lot of people, certainly supporters, were saying at halftime, we've got to change something because this isn't really working. They went in at halftime getting battered by Aston Villa. I mean, they conceded seven shots on target in the first half. Against Newcastle, it was one all at halftime. And again, Newcastle had been pretty comfortable for the majority of that. But they do trust the fitness, but also that they're all so familiar now with this system and the automatisms that Conte has drilled into them. You know, this is what he does. He has these patterns that they become so familiar with. They they all know exactly what they're doing. And you're seeing that now, that they are trusting that. And I think on the glue point, I mean, having Eric Dyer in the middle of the three, but also Christian Romero coming back from injury, he was out for three months. He came back in February and has made an enormous difference, both to how solid they are defensively, but he's also someone, and Ben Davis does it, as the left-sided centre-back, Romero being the right-sided centre-back, the way they get forward and, and help to overwhelm opposition defences who just don't really know what to do. You know, teams are so well coached, but you still can, if you can spring a surprise and put players into positions where they're not, they just don't really know. I mean, who's picking up Romero? Who's picking up Ben Davis? And it seems mad to be talking about Ben Davis this for so long, this sort of solid unspectacular left back as a kind of secret attacking weapon but I do think teams have struggled with that with what to do when Spurs' defenders start charging forward and all of a sudden they're piling men into the box but they have the fitness that they trust themselves to be able to get back and not get caught out defensively. I wanted to get Ollie and Adam's take on the on the other contenders in a moment's time but obviously when you when you talk about Tottenham and we saw with you know his his creativity um in the game against Aston Villa, uh, Harry Kane is is at the centre of everything. Is it simply the case now that he is happy and if they finish in the top four, he will stay and everyone will forget about recent history in terms of him being desperate, (laughs) desperate to leave? I know it was very clear 12 months ago that he was unhappy, was going to be unhappy even if they finished in the top four unhappy even if they won the League Cup but this time it feels like there are no leaks coming out of Tottenham no leaks coming out of the Kane camp and it it feels as if he's more content you know certainly on the pitch certainly in his performance level at the moment it feels like Man City are are in pole position to get Erling Haaland and and, and that means that that opening doesn't doesn't arise if that opening did arise again this this summer would he fancy it? I would guess he would but it doesn't feel like he's banging on the door and and as he's exasperated as as he was this time last year when the mood around the club was was so bad the mood right now is probably as good as it's been since Champions League final under Pochettino so I expect whereas there have been times in the past where he didn't want to go where he was really settled there was last year where he was desperate to go and, and couldn't get a move I expect this year he's He's happy to stay if nothing comes up, and and if something appealing did come up, then then he might be um, tempted to to try to urge the club to, to to take it. But it's I don't really see much coming up that's going to be better than um, better than Spurs at the moment. And I'll say also that his form in the first half of the season, I think clubs would have run a mile from him. You know, big big clubs would have would have looked at him and thought, well, you 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 didn't end last season brilliantly. You've started this season terribly. You look like you're 
sort of under a cloud. Why would we pay anything near 100 million for him? But his form over the last couple of months has been brilliant, been arguably the best player in the league over the last couple of months. So maybe that changes the dynamic slightly, but I, I, I don't see him being um, anything like as disillusioned as he was this time last year. Charlie, it was perhaps something that, that surprised a lot of people subsequent to, you know, the, the heavy links with, with Manchester City that, that Harry Kane appeared to be one of those players that was was literally showing their emotions in their performances in the early part of the season. People would think that you know, you know, he's he's England captain. He's a, a hugely influential player in in the Premier League. We wouldn't expect that sort of thing from him, but it was very much the case. And now he looks he looks he looks so much more happy and so much more motivated doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, I think from Kane's perspective, and people will have different interpretations as to how valid this is, or whether this is the whole picture, but he's always, his position has been that he wants to win the trophies commensurate with his talent and application, and play in the competitions commensurate with those things, i.e. he should be in the Champions League and he should be winning trophies. And ideally, he would do that at Tottenham, but when it became clear that that just wasn't going to happen at Tottenham, which I think is fair to say this time last year that probably was the case he wanted out and obviously if you follow that logic then when Spurs are in a position where they're competing for trophies and in the Champions League again then in theory Spurs can offer him a lot more of what he wants and it does feel like now let's say they do finish fourth and they get in the Champions League and therefore Conte is staying and then you'd think then they're going to be in a position next season to compete for trophies then the picture does change a lot and it looks a lot more as though that's the kind of Spurs Kane will want to be at. He could still turn around and say, well, no, I want to be playing at a team where trophies is an absolute demand, not just a nice bonus, and that we're going to win the Champions League, not just playing in the Champions League. I don't think anyone would say that's sort of getting above his station. We're talking about probably the best player in the Premier League right now on current form. So I don't think them getting the Champions League will mean, yep, all is forgotten, contented Kane. But what I do think is if they don't get in the Champions League, then it's going to be another long, long summer for Spurs. Because then I think not only will his future be up for a lot of speculation, I think Conte's will as well. So it's just absolutely massive to even give... And and look, it's not about whether he'll go, because ultimately whether they... You know, if they if they finish 10th or they finish 4th, ultimately he still has two years left on his contract and the power is with Levy. But if they want a summer that isn't dominated by machinations, will he, won't he go, then I think that getting 4th is a prerequisite. The interesting thing is that, you know, the, the, the club that's being hotly linked with him at the moment is Manchester United. And Manchester United would, I'm sure, offer more money if they felt he would come. But is it a better move for him? It might have felt this time last year like United were ready to kick on and maybe who knows maybe if United had signed Kane rather than Ronaldo they might have kicked on more we'll, we'll never know but right now Spurs looks a, a better bet whereas United looks like it would be a sort of joining a project which may or may not be look better in sort of two three years he will if he feels he's he's in a hurry which at this stage of his career he, he probably would be forgiven for feel like feeling like then um I suspect he, he would regard staying at Spurs if they're in the Champions League um as preferable to moving to United if they're in the Europa League or the Europa Conference League or or, or neither there's a lot of extra detail on on Manchester United's um pursuit of the Ajax uh, manager Eric Ten Hag in, in David Ornstein's column, um, which you can go and read. Uh, there is also a podcast as well, which you could which you can dig out and have a listen to, where we go through some of the, the main topics. But but Adam, fr- from your point of view, when you look at the Manchester United situation, obviously they had a, a terrible result against Everton, but it's almost bizarre that people were thinking, oh yeah, they'll probably go to Everton 
and lose, such as the malaise and, I don't know, just the, 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 the crumbling atmosphere at Old Trafford at the moment. It, it, it just seems like they can't get this season over with quick enough and try and get a reset with it, whether it's with Kane or, or whoever. It just needs to happen as soon as possible. Well, you can, I mean, forget about Man United in the top four. I mean, that's just like, there is no chance that they will be finishing in the top four. The, the fixtures they have, they've still got to go to Liverpool, still got to go to Arsenal. But at the moment, you wouldn't trust them. They've got Norwich at home next week. And I'm not really sure they'll win that game the way they're going at the moment. They didn't. They couldn't beat Watford at home, sorry, Adam, a few weeks ago and couldn't score against them. So you, you, at the moment, you're in a position where you don't trust Manchester United to get a result, I would say, against any team, any team they play. I mean, they played Middlesbrough in the FA Cup and had a very strong team out that night and couldn't win that game. So, yeah, I think they're desperate to get to the end of the season. I don't think they'll they'll be repeating again this idea of having an interim manager it clearly worked last time on an interim basis with Solskjaer and they thought that was you know the way to go again it's just not worked this time there's too many players who have individual situations I think you know whether that's the contractual situations of Pogba and Lingard the uniqueness of Cristiano Ronaldo's situation at the club there was too many players I think that were coming to the end anyway that probably wouldn't have been motivated by an interim manager that needed to see the club get someone in in November when they still had you know two-thirds of the season left to try and achieve something to get in the top four and it's been a bit like oh we'll just get we'll get Rangnick in and he'll see us through and you know you kind of watch Rangnick on the touchline I feel a bit sorry for him in the sense of you always look at him and he's like what is he actually really doing with the with the players you know I can't see any sign of Ralph Rangnick style of football in that team and it, it feels a bit unfortunately as though he tried for four or five weeks to get them to play the way that he'd like to play and then the players weren't really that up for it and he just kind of went back to what they were doing before with Solskjaer which is this kind of 4-2-3-1 that you know with Ronaldo at the top of it just doesn't really work because he doesn't apply the pressure that you need in that position so yeah I think I think I, I expect over the next couple of weeks United to make the appointment it sounds like it's going to be Ten Hag it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a surprise if they try and do that quicker just because I know Ajax have this cup final, but Manchester United also have a situation coming up because it's I think it's a Super League anniversary over the next 10 days and they play Liverpool away and they play Arsenal away and they're already losing games. And if they lose those two as well, you can see how a situation develops where those kind of protests that we saw last year against the ownership return again with similar energy so the club I think will be very keen to make this appointment and make clear that they do have a plan going forwards Final word on on this uh, I'll give to Charlie obviously Tottenham we know are in fourth position they're effectively in the driving seat due to their form and it looks as if it is going to come down to that that North London derby you, you called them unspursy uh, in your um, analysis Arsenal have gone back to looking a bit arsenally haven't they a bit sort of soft underbelly-y and it was perhaps what people were expecting. They thought, well, hang on a minute, this Mikhail Arteta train can't carry on on this course, you know, without any any hiccups. And and so it so it appears it's, it's arrived at the wrong time. Yeah, I mean, I said this last week, actually, before the Palace game, that whereas Spurs were on a good run, but winning their games pretty comfortably and convincingly, Arsenal, I think, in their six wins, five had been by a single goal and one had been 2-0. So... You kind of suspected, yeah, it might be about to to change. And and I I mentioned as well, 
well, I question how sustainable it was having a striker who can't score goals was, you know, that's kind of one of those things that works until it doesn't. And he's had a small squad, Arteta, this season, kind of necessarily, to be fair to him, because they haven't been in Europe. So you can't really have a bloated group where a lot of players are going to be playing and not happy. But that does mean you're at the mercy of injuries to key players. And I think Partey and Tierney, based on the quality and the differential of quality of their replacement, are probably the two players he'd least like to have lost, Arteta. So I think that's been massive. And and I was thinking as well about, uh, just on that, Arsenal-y. I don't think they've finished the season to get what they wanted well since about, I think, 2012-13. They, they, they finished fourth and pinched, you know, just held off Spurs, got their objective. Since then, I think they've either had a fairly straightforward path to get what they wanted to get, i.e. the Champions League and a few years after that, or they have missed out on the Champions League and kind of fallen apart a little bit towards the end. That's what happened in 1617, though they rallied, and then in 1819 under Emery when they had a very similar situation actually to what's happening here, and I think a lot of supporters are drawing parallels. So they actually have been the team really over the last decade of the big six who've who've made the biggest habit of this rather than Tottenham. And I think now for them to get the momentum back in the way they have to do, especially given the fixtures they have, and for Spurs to lose it, to lose their momentum, that things can change quickly. We've seen how, I mentioned how quickly things have changed in the space of the last week. Maybe in a week's time, we'll be saying, wow, you know, Spurs lost at home to Brighton and Arsenal went and beat Southampton and now it's all flipped over again. Obviously that could happen, but I I, I think the way it's going, I'd... um, I would make Spurs quite strong favourites to finish above them and get fourth place. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's betterhel dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. So there was plenty of drama at the bottom end of the Premier League this weekend as well, with Everton securing that big win over Manchester United, Leeds comfortably beating Watford. And on Sunday, Norwich ran out 2-0 winners against Burnley, a result which means that the current bottom three are looking increasingly likely uh, that they are going to be the three who go down to the championship. Joining us to reflect on that game at Carrow Road yesterday uh, is the Athletics Burnley writer Andy Jones. Andy, welcome on board. It's it's just peaks and troughs, isn't it, with with Burnley, that the highs of that victory over Everton and then no one thought really that, that Norwich were going to um, topple them after the, the character that they had shown in that game. But they did. It, it just shows how how fickle football is. Yeah, exactly. You know, when when you look back to that that result on Wednesday, you, you know, you just fully expect Burnley to, to carry that momentum into 
into the knowledge game and you know really put themselves right back into into the relegation you know survival battle really especially then when you see the results on Saturday with Everton winning and, and Leeds winning and you felt like the this was the most winnable game they had left in the running and therefore they, they had to do it but as you say and I wrote to me a piece of the sky that's sort of a roller coaster and it has very much been that there's been moments when you've you've thought right here we go barely you're about to get started you look back at that Tottenham win in February when it was they'd just be Brighton back-to-back wins but for some reason this season which which has been different to, to previous ones is that when the big games have come up against the teams around them with the exception of Everton they've, they've saved their worst performances for, for those games and, and not not got the results and, and that's ultimately why they're in the position they are. I was really interested to hear Sean Dyche speaking after the Everton game and it appeared he was trying to play mind games on Everton having already beaten them saying that they didn't look like they were a side that knew how to win it almost feels like the footballing gods have come back to bite him straight away because I thought it was quite bold from from Sean to be doing that. Do, do you concur with that view? Yeah, it was one of them at the time, you sort of think. And and I, I probably didn't realise that. I think he spoke to Frank Lampard after, during the week and, and sort of basically explained what he meant by it. I don't think he meant it in the way it sort of came across. On one side, you go, you know, what a team talk. You know, there we go. That's what you want to, that's what you want to hear as a Burnley fan that your manager sort of able to rouse the players and, and the way he's done it but equally in the back of my mind I did think have you just it, it's, it's it's very much that, that sort of old cliche of that's what you're going to pin up on the dressing room wall in, in the Everton dressing room and, and you know it wouldn't surprise me if, if Frank Lampard's team talk or you know during you know in the preparations for United will have referred to that and sort of gone look this is what you know Burnley think of you you know go out go out there and change the perceptions so yeah I, I was I was surprised that he sort of was so open I guess in in, the, in what he'd said to the players in that way of sort of basically putting down an opposition and saying these these can't win football games so go and beat them you know the way things have happened over the last two days it just sort of sort of makes it look even worse you, you do think that maybe uh, maybe you shouldn't have said it I loved it. I, I like. I mean, I, I watched it, and I was like, I really want to play for Sean Dyche. That was the feeling I had watching that that clip. I was like, God, I I came away from that clip thinking there is not a chance Burnley don't stay up. And then the weekend happened, and now there's every chance Burnley don't stay up. I think really the only thing, the decisive factor this weekend was that Everton got to play Manchester United. Like, and I don't I don't mean that you know too crudely, but really I think there isn't a better team for any team down there at the moment to be playing and that's and and I think that's ultimately the, the big thing and Norwich you know it was a bit of like a last stand for them I was just wondering with, with Burnley obviously Chris Wood went January Wedcourt came in not really worked um is that fair? Is there any sign, you know, that he's getting closer or not really? Yeah, so it's a really difficult one with with Vegos because he came in and, and made that impact instantly, a goal and, and two assists in his first uh, four games. But since then, it's been a bit weird. The team's still sort of adapting to how he plays. He's not, he's a different striker, even though, you know, physically he looks the same as Chris Wood in terms of height and, and build and et cetera. He's a completely different striker, and that Chris Wood was someone who wanted to play on the last man, run the channels, like the aerial battles, whereas Vegos is very much, he's not that great in the air, and he wants the ball into feet. So it, it's that straight, like Bernie is still adapting to him. And in a weird way, it worked and they played to his strengths earlier, but they've sort of come away from that a little bit. I asked also about Dice about Vegos because you can sort of see the frustrations building within him, him and obviously being the first up yesterday in such a crucial game that the guy was brought in to score the goals 
if he's the first man you're bringing off, you know, you, you sort of have to question that. And and I sort of reflected it as sort of, he thinks that Vegost is too team bound. So he's thinking too much about trying to help everybody else and trying to fight every fire. And that's reflected in his running stats and his pressures, which have been off the charts since he's arrived. Dice basically was saying, we need to get him back to think about yourself, think about what you're doing, how you can get into the positions. And, and it need, that needs to happen quickly. And I don't, I think that's what they would have liked to have worked with him in, just in, in the international break. Obviously, he went away. So they've not been able to properly get that training time in because since he's come in, they've played so many games. They've not had lots of training time on the pitch to sort of work. But he he's different to what Burnley's style usually is. And you can sort of see that. And there's frustration with fans of, of sort of those long passes into channels, which that's not his game. They wanted, he wants it into feet. He wants direct passes into him. And, and he did start initially when he came in by doing that. But they've, they've sort of gone away from that a little bit. And they need him to be fired. And if they've got any chance and, and therefore they need to... Feel Feels like they need to adjust a little bit to get him back to to playing to his strengths. Andy, I'll, I'll ask you about Sean Dyche's future uh, in a moment's time. But Ollie, I just wanted to get your take on on Everton, and you know, obviously we mentioned the mind games there and and things like that. But I thought Frank Lampard after that game at Burnley looked as close to a broken man as I've ever seen Frank Lampard look. He's always looked very sort of cool, calm and and collected on the whole, especially when he was a player, but he did look really sort of low. And to his credit, he got a performance out of Everton. Yes, it was Manchester United, but it showed that he's got some fight and he really needs this job to work, doesn't he? Oh, he does. I mean, Everton need it to work and and, and he needs it to work. And um, I thought he looked disgusted at Burnley. I think there have been several games where he's come off looking disgusted and exasperated by the performances. You know, obviously the buck stops with him as as a manager, but he's clearly just felt these guys, you know, some of them at times have just not performed. And he's been accused of not knowing his best team, of shuffling it around and chopping and changing. I think he's just looking for someone, anyone who can sort of stand up and um, and perform and what, what they got on Saturday, albeit against a very listless Manchester United team, was some real proper individual and collective performances. Ben Godfrey in, in defence, he's not, not had a great second season. I, I, I thought he was brilliant in his first season, but, he, but he's not had a great season. He had a really good game against um, like Pickford. Pickford, without really being overworked, had a really good game. And Fabian Delph was fantastic in, in midfield, sort of showing the, the qualities that Everton have, have really lacked in, in midfield this season. And, and I thought it was really nice that Anthony Gordon got, got the goal. I mean, he, he's been the one sort of bright spark for, for Everton really over the last, this season, but also also probably the, the closing months of of last season. He, he, he's been the one sort of where you think, oh, they might, you know, the, we spent all this money and all these players are underperforming, but, Look, there's a lad from Kirkdale who's who's come in and and looks like you know looks looks like he's got more personality than a lot of these big name signings and big money signings. And uh, look, it was a deflected goal. It wasn't wasn't necessarily the greatest all round individual performance you would ever see. But I, I was really glad that, that that it was him that that got that goal. And if it hints anything that Everton need to build around, it's it's young hungry players rather than players who are who were there to kind of pick up a decent wage and and, and go through the motions. I think they've had a few too many of those over the last five or six years. So the gap is now four points 
from Everton down to, to Burnley uh, in 18th. And it looks as if, yes, OK, Norwich beat beat Burnley, but it looks as if both Norwich and Watford will be heading in the same direction. Who knows? There might be loads of twists and turns. And obviously, from a Watford persuasion, it would be great if there was just even a flicker of a, of a twist in this in this long old season. But just a final point to you, Andy, on, on Sean Dyche. And, and I suppose it's, it has an impact with, with the amount of players that are going to be out of contract. Do you think even if they do survive, that this might be time for a reset or or, or is it not as set in stone as that? I think in terms of, of the playing squad, it's certainly, as you mentioned, the contract situation, it tends to lead to that. I mean, the average age is, is the highest in the Premier League and it's sort of because of the lack of investment in the three years prior to the new owners coming in. And Dice has referenced this a couple of times, he referenced it recently, they need to basically speed up that evolution. It was an evolution that they ideally would have had over a number of seasons, but they've only basically been able to start it this season with the likes of Nathan Collins, Connor Roberts, Maxwell Corney, that younger core of, of signings coming through to replace the older ones. They've sort of put themselves in a position where they could do what Palace do or did last, last summer, but obviously they're not going to have the same financial uh, weight. And obviously if they go down, then things change again. But you're also then probably, well, you're not, you're looking at a different type of play that you're recruiting. You're not recruiting for, you know, I guess as higher prices as you would have been. I think in terms of Dice's future, it's, it's a really interesting one because obviously he signed a four-year deal in September at the start of the season and that suggests that he was still thinking long-term about the club. I think he made it clear to the ownership basically that he knew this was going to be a tough season. He thought they'd still be fine and, and before the Rodgers game, he, he said that again, he still thinks they'll be fine. Whether that might have changed now is different, different story, but it's been tougher than, than they expected. I think in, in terms of Dice's future is a difficult one because when you look at where would he go I think is the biggest question that I have and I always come back to I struggle to see what Premier League side at the moment is going to you know want him and therefore you effectively you know he's looking at taking another job in the championship if that's the case and that's what he'd be doing with Burnley and Burnley you would what you would expect would be in a stronger position than most to to sort of fight and and be in a position to, to go straight back up because of the parachute payments and, and the strength of squad that he'd be able to keep hold of, you would expect. You know, they did lose a few players, of course. So, it, it, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one, but it does. the playing squad's needed a reset for a while. Um, it's fair to say that those players have continued and it does feel like this season is where time has sort of caught up to them and they are now paying, paying the price for the lack of investment over a number of years and, and not being able to evolve that squad and, and move it on and, and bring in, I mean, the likes of it and Maxwell Corney because the previous owners didn't want to take risks in European markets just in case it went wrong. And so, yeah, it, it, it does feel like it needs a Reset anyway, regardless of what division they're in. And but I, I would, I, I still think Dice will will be there. I'd, I'd be surprised if he goes. But equally, the the new owners may feel it, it needs a change. But I don't. They were so keen on him when he when he came in. They thought he was he was crucial to the vision, and that's why they were so keen to get him signed. So when he's gone a long term, they you would expect that he will be the man to lead that that reset. I, I was just going to say, obviously, Watford have changed manager twice, which is probably part of the course, Adam. Everton have changed manager. That people will say results haven't picked up, but they have in terms of the the, the, the those three wins that they've had are, are is an improvement on the form of the sort of last 15 games or so under Benitez. Leeds have clearly had a, a bounce. Burnley, I think admirably, have, have, have stuck by Sean Dyche and felt that, that he was their best chance of um, keeping him up. And it's if finally we've reached a stage where Sean Dyche isn't able to keep Burnley up, it's, I mean, it, it feels, it, it's so hard to do that. I mean, it's so hard to, to do that. And I don't think, I don't think Burnley are a club who should have twisted and changed manager mid-season. I, I think, 
I think Everton needed to. I think Watford, because of the nature of the beast, needed to. I think Leeds, painful as it might be to say regarding Bielsa, I, I think he'd run out of ideas. And I think Marsh has brought new ideas, new energy. But I think I, I do feel Burnley were right to were right to stick with Dyche. Well, we'll see how it ends up. Um, but from a Watford point of view, and games against what Everton and Burnley coming up at home, you would think, oh, that's where the twist's going to happen. But unfortunately, Watford cannot win at home. Um, one since November, <laughs> and I've written a piece about it this morning, which is, I'll, I'll be brutally honest, is, is a window into my broken soul of uh, <laughs> watching Watford at Vicarage Road uh, this season. So if you want to check that out and you want to feel really good about yourself if you're not a Watford fan, but bad about yourself if you are a Watford fan, then, then check that one out. Andy, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks to Adam and thanks to Ollie as well. So that's all for now. Uh, don't forget you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 per month for the first six months by going to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. Take care. The Athletic.